Warning, this podcast may contain content that some may find triggering. Also, this podcast is in no way trying to glorify the life or lifestyle of the subject, but rather document it for educational, historical, and artistic purposes. How a lemon pie obsession became a young girl's greatest disappointment and drove her to become the most notorious queen of the New Orleans underworld. I got someone to be my legs and make a dead man come on. I got someone between my legs and make a dead man come out. My name is Summer, and this is Paying For It. Welcome back for episode three, and oh boy, are we in for a very thrilling story full of seduction, influence, and power. I'm so excited to get into today's story, but before we get there, let's address some things. First, either this video or the video prior, I started putting warnings on the top of my videos. I think this is a good idea just because we talk about some taboo subjects, especially prostitution is very taboo. And so, uh, yeah, I just think I should. Also, in these stories, they're not always good. They're not always bad. Like I said in the beginning, I want to talk about their the good, the bad, and the ugly, but also the seduction, the power, the influence, and just the business side of what the women were able to do. So, um, but... I digress to what I was originally saying. There are ugly parts of historical stories, not just the ladies that we talk about here, but just in general. And some of the ugly parts of the story might some people may find triggering. And I don't want to have to stop every time something's about to come up um, that might get you feeling some kind of way. So my thing is, if you're here, and you want to be here to learn about these ladies with me, then you'll know that there are going to be some icky parts to these stories sometimes, especially since a lot of these stories take place, well, in the 1800s, 1900s, 1900s. <laughs> yeah, anyways, the early, you know, I'm t- I'll be addressing a bunch of different people, but some of these stories just have ugly parts to them that you might not like. And if that is the case, I don't blame you. You don't have to be here, and I'm okay with that. I respect your decision. I just want you to know. Second, I have a little friend today. Hello, Mr. Snowman. Um, We are currently recording this on December 15th, so the holiday season is upon us, but you won't be seeing this until mid-January, so you just get a little festive for now. Okay? Okay. Let's move on. I think he's pretty cute. Also, 
yeah, I got my little Dutch bros here. Go Dutchies. So, shall we get into it? <laughs> okay. I'm so excited to get into today's story because her story was one of the ones I became infatuated with upon returning from the trip from New Orleans. I went to New Orleans Mardi Gras in 2020, and this was right before the world shut down due to COVID. It was right before anyone even really realized it was going to be as serious as it was. So Mardi Gras went off as it would normally go off, really. Um... But the funny thing about Mardi Gras is that me and my me, my best friend and boyfriend went and we all got shirts saying um, I survived Mardi Gras 2020. And when we came back literally a month and a half later, the world shut down. We wore these shirts and we were laughing because it was it was a really that we survived. We survived the Mardi Gras, but not only Mardi Gras, but the pandemic that was just starting to ramp up and we didn't even know it. So that's a little silly story of um, New Orleans when we were there. But um, yeah, so when I went on the trip, wow, is it easy to fall in love with New Orleans, especially if you're like me and love history? But Nola is rich with stories of the notorious woman we are all here to learn about. When I was at Mardi Gras, it was there I was introduced to Norma by accident. Uh, I was on a, I was tipsy on a haunted bar crawl. I mean, when in Mardi Gras, right? Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I was tipsy on a haunted bar crawl when um, the tour guide had mentioned Norma's name in relation to someone we'll meet later in her story. Hence, he owns a bar. Hence why we might have heard about him and her on the haunted bar crawl of New Orleans. <laughs> when I got back from the bar crawl, uh, I don't know if you, if everyone does this on vacation, but this is something I've always done on vacation. It's like you go out, do something really fun, go back to your like place that you're staying. In this case, it was an Airbnb. We rest for a little bit, eat, well, maybe not eat, but we rest for a little bit, get ready, go back out, eat and have the rest of your whatever. So yeah, that's what we did. Even though the haunted bar crawl kind of got over later, we went back, we rested, went in Mardi Gras, got ready, and went back out for the night. I will say though, while I was resting, I was on my phone like, Norma, Norma, who owns a bar, who, whose husband owned a bar. Like I was Googling, I was trying to find out who Norma was because he, left me with enough of breadcrumbs to be like, who is she? Why do I need to know her? So when I finally found out who she was and her story, I, I was like, wow, wow, wow. So I knew, you know, originally Norma was going to be one of my first stories I was going to tell on this podcast. But I'm excited we're here. I'm excited we are going to be talking about Norma. I will let you know. Norma's story is different because she had the insight to record her life story because she knew she was an interesting person. So it is going to be a long, long story. We, I'm thinking 
I'm thinking it's going to be about three parts. So welcome in. Welcome to part one. <laughs> I welcome you to settle in because we will be starting a very thrilling story today. Her life is exciting. But not only that, we get to see history through her eyes starting in the early 1900s and not coming to an end until the, er the early 1960s. So we have a lot of ground to cover today. Well, for the next couple days, I guess. We get to explore a time period in history that is so, so fascinating, and we get to do it all while learning the life of a very powerful woman of the New Orleans underworld. Today, I'm excited to bring you into Norma's world and tell her story as wide open and as glamorous because for the queen of the underworld, nothing but the ritz and the glitz will do. Let me introduce you to Norma Wallace. Norma Badan was born in Macomb, Mississippi to parents Amanda and John Golly Badan. In 1901, Amanda and John were 27 when they had Norma. John was born in Covington, Louisiana, which is about 41 miles away from New Orleans. That's about a 46-minute drive today. John found himself in Macomb, where he met Amanda Easley, who was the daughter of the first mayor of Macomb, Warren Easley. Amanda became Amanda Easley Badon, and they had a daughter, Norma. <laughs> Now Norma's story seems to start out looking bright. The granddaughter of the first mayor of the, your city, she should be on track to entering into proper society. So where did her story turn? It seems Norma was always destined to end up in the underworld. Three months after Norma's birth, her parents decided to make the move to the French quarters, New Orleans. To any interviewer who asked about her parents, Norma would paint them as if they were upstanding citizens, not forgetting to mention that her mother was the mayor's daughter. But in private, she would confine to those she trusted that her parents' motivation to move to the French Quarter was to live the wildlife. If you were chasing the wildlife in the 1900s, the French Quarters was the place to be. So Amanda and John settled in Mid-Cities, which is located about three miles from the French Quarters. The French Quarter was where all of the fun was to be had. Known for its entertainment district that had everything from gambling, dancing, and a lot of drinking. And for people who were chasing the wildlife, they sure found it in the French Quarters. Unfortunately, this is where Norma's story goes dark for a bit. Legitimately dark. <laughs> Norma recorded a lot of her life story because she knew her story should live on even after she no longer could be the one to tell it. And in the book, The Last Madam, A Life in the New Orleans Underworld by Chris Wiltz, which was my main source for Norma, Wiltz had the pleasure to be able to listen to Norma tell her story and bring her back to life in her book. It was really, really good. And I listened to this book um, about two years ago, right after, uh, right after coming back from New Orleans, actually, and uh, I was, I was in love. And then I, I'm re-listening to it now to write this, and I'm still so in love. And if you go and you find 
other sources, they don't do her justice as her life was really glamorous, really exciting and dangerous. So um, Wiltz is able to really, really put that into perspective. And hopefully I can do her justice as well today. So yeah, I really recommend it if you end up falling in love with Norma today and you should want more information or just want to hear it all over again, uh, I suggest you check out uh, that book. Um, and I will leave the name and everything in the description down below. <laughs> in her recordings, Norma doesn't really talk about her childhood. She chose to really start her story when she was 12. The one story, though, that she does choose to share with us about her childhood does give us an inside look of her early days in the 1900s French quarters. I want to start off by saying 1900s wasn't easy for anyone to live. There wasn't a lot of money circulating. The, wor the world just wasn't what it is now. And... Um, it was also kind of grimy. That's the best way I can say it without saying just straight up filthy, even though kind of was filthy. Plumbing really wasn't a thing. It was, you know, hard times upon everyone. And the French quarters, again, was an entertainment district. So to live near the French quarters, you're living in a party zone and if you know anything about drinkers and partiers they aren't thinking with the best intentions so they're not doing the they're not doing everything to keep things clean if i should say so anyways so anyways back to norma she talks about her family and how incredibly poor they were her parents didn't move to the French quarters with the motivations to get better jobs and become great parents. They wanted to party. So most, if not all, of their money that they did find a way to scrape together would go to the local watering holes. Oftentimes, the family would just move instead of paying rent, leaving a long list of landlords they owed money to. Sometime in this time period, her parents welcomed another child into the family. His name was Elmo. This does not change things for the family other than giving them another mouth to barely be able to feed. Nor does it make Amanda and John grow up. They continue to drink and party and struggle financially. In 1909, Norma was eight when her family moved again to a little house uh, with no electricity, heat, and had an outside outhouse. Again, this was a time when plumbing was further rich um, and very, very new concept. It wouldn't be until 1915 that indoor plumbing was in all housing. However, the nicer housings would still have bathrooms within the, the house. You know, the main house, they would still have bathrooms within the main house. Um, so she really was, she, so like at eight years old, they moved to this house that didn't even have the basic amenities for the time period we're talking about. So this is where Norma Wallace would experience her greatest disappointment of her life. This house was located near a bakery, and the sweet sugary scent of their lemon pie would drift over to Norma's house. 
Norma, who lived with little to nothing, was now tormented with the scent of pie every morning. Norma, who lived with little to nothing, was now tormented with a scent of a pie every morning that she could only dreamily drool over. She asked her mom for a lemon pie, but because the type of parents they were, um, that would be 10 cents less that she would be able to put towards her drinking habit. And since you could get two, four ounces, which uh, two four ounce drinks for about five cents each, that is two drinks she would have to give up in order to treat her daughter to a treat that was constantly teasing her day in and day out. So, of course, Amanda chose the drink and selfishness over her daughter. And as a bartender, I want to say two four-ounce drinks for five cents. Wow, okay, who is she? Never again will we see those kinds of prices. But (laughs) four ounces? Ah, no wonder people were, like, dying of alcohol poisoning and stuff. There was no, like, regulations on how much drinks you could have. I don't think bartenders cut people off ever. So it was, like, intense, intense amount of liquor just to be giving out four ounces and it's not like they made I mean mixed drinks were starting to be a thing and stuff but a lot of the times you're getting a setup straight up like and thinking about how the liquor must have tasted back in the 1900s (laughs) oh I can't I'm gonna vomit just thinking about it anyways let's keep moving um however Norma couldn't let the smell of the pie the smell and the longing of that pie go How could she? She's eight. She just wants that sugar treat. So she constantly is asking and begging for that lemon pie, and she's constantly met with no's again and again. Until one day, a glimmer of hope arised. Even though they didn't have the room, John, her father, decided to take on a boarder named McCann, who also was a drunk. Yeah, it's just common in the French quarters and for this time period. This, they decided to take McCann on in the hopes that the family wouldn't be financially burdened with the entire portion of their rent. So after a bit of begging, Amanda finally conceded and told Norma that once McCann gave them his portion of the rent in three weeks, she would take Norma to get a pie. Pause for a second. I think last week we met Nightmare. Oh, (laughs) I scared her trying to pet her. I'm sorry, Dreamy. That was Dreamy, my other cat. She's got scared though, so she's gone. (laughs) Um, Norma was over the moon with excitement. She was counting down the days until she could finally get her taste buds on one of those lemon pies. The night before rent was due, She's excited. She's hyped. She's like, hell yeah, tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. Um, Yeah, so the night before, she's like, party, you know. McCann and the family also are all hanging out in the family living room. McCann excuses himself to go outside to the outhouse, and he is gone for a really long time. So Amanda's like, 
I guess I should go, like, check on him because I don't know where he is and he's been gone for a while. So she goes out to the outhouse to check on him and returns frantically freaking out. Like, she's visibly upset and, like, panicking a little bit because and once, like, John is able to get her to calm down, she announces to the house that McCann had committed suicide by drinking cabalic acid. Now, I just want to pause again for a second. First of all, I've never ever heard of someone committing suicide by drinking cabalic acid. I don't know why that would be. I can't imagine that being any way, shape, or form okay to any way, shape, or form, like an easy way to go is what I'm trying to say. But that's how he chose to do it. Like I said in the beginning when I introduced McCann, he was a drunk and he did not have his portion of the rent. So he knew he didn't have anywhere else to go tomorrow when he couldn't produce that rent. So he decided to take his own life. Sadly, for this time period, that was not uncommon. I don't know if cabalic acid was the way everyone chose, but hopefully not, to be honest. I just can't get over that. Um, Yeah. That was the moment Norma realized that she would never get that lemon pie, at least not unless she went and got it for herself. Shortly after they discovered McCann, um, John... Her father walked in on Amanda, their mother, cheating on him, and he, John left. He abandoned the family, and he moved a few towns over and started a lumber business with his two brothers. Uh, He also started a proper family. One of his brothers would go on to be the sheriff, and the other would go on to be the mayor. Not John Golly, though. Even though he fled the entertainment district and tried to leave the wildlife behind, John Golly would always have a drinking problem, causing him to always also have money problems. Money can't fix everything. Although Norma always held resentment from her father, she would eventually go on to buy him a property that she then again later... Um, would inherit after her father passed away. We don't hear much more about her father in this story, but we do hear about that farm or that property. She turns it into a farm a lot in her story. Amanda, their mother, a woman, a drunk woman at that, plus she had two children and now was husbandless. This is in the early 1900s where there are, was no government assistance, no way to get child support, uh, no real jobs for a lot of the men out there, let alone any real job, let alone any jobs for women. Amanda, who had a habit to fund and no real other options at around 39, would turn to the sex trade. She was entering the sex trade pretty late in life, and we will learn from Norma later in her story why we know that. So we know that she wasn't starting in a nice brothel. She most likely started walking the streets and or renting cribs. At this point, Norma's 11 and Elmo is 6. Pretty, they, are, they just got abandoned by their father, now are pretty much abandoned by their mother, who rarely, if ever, made it home at night. 
either working or drinking the nights away. Never thinking about her two children who had no help. Um, This in turn pretty much made the children homeless. No way to get heat, food, or other necessities. The two siblings had to pretty much drop out of school and Elmo started stealing for them in order for them to live. This was the way they lived for a while until the neighbors realized that they were not being cared for and took them in. When Norma becomes financially successful later in her life, she would go on to make sure those neighbors were comfortable and owned their own home so that they could live out the rest of their life pretty much with ease, without that burden. And we'll see that uh, quite often about Norma. She really, if you helped her, she would make sure you were taken care of. Now, Norma doesn't tell many stories of her childhood, but we can assume by the picture that Norma was able to paint about her early childhood and parents, you can see that it wasn't great. So when Norma chooses to really begin her story in 1912, when she was 12, Moving to Memphis to the to first be with her grandparents and then later her cousins, Norma chooses to start her story of her journey on becoming the longest running madam of New Orleans when she was in control, when she had the power and the choice. She gives no credit to her mother in this journey. So we will never know if she did actually confide in her cousins that her own mother put her on the streets as a prostitute as a young girl. We are just getting started on Norma's story, but we will learn that Norma at a young age forges two different personas. One that's very respectable and posh, and the second that's very, very comfortable navigating the underworld. So publicly, she painted her and her family in a very sophisticated light, but she gained her morality in thriving in the underworld. And to thrive in the underworld, you live by a different set of rules. One of of Norma's rules was family loyalty. So that could be a possibility why she may have never ch- why she may have chosen not to include that part in her recordings if it is true it could also be true that norma refused to paint herself as a victim because she never saw herself that way when looking back on her life she was quite proud of the empire she herself had built so if amanda did victimize her daughter in that way norma would never choose to start her story as a victim. Norma begins her long 40-year career in the sex trade in Memphis, Tennessee. One day, when staying with her cousins, they passed by the Gayoso Hotel on a walk. The Gayoso Hotel was glamorous. Looked, it looked out at the Myth, uh, Mississippi River and had indoor plumbing. This hotel was for the rich and famous. And outside this hotel were women dressed to the nines on the arms of men they were hoping to be invited back upstairs with. 
This was where Norma becomes obsessed with the gayoso, but more the woman who hustled the gayoso men. Norma had never really seen an elegant lady of the night. It wasn't uncommon for this time period for women to dress scantily clothed or just completely naked in the windows of the brothel. Norma was so used to the French quarters where Storyville, a legalized red light district, was in full swing. Here's dreamy. <laughs> at the Gayos, at the Gayoso though, it was different. It was a different kind of hustle. The the kind of clientele that would wine and dine you. Older men who are willing to pay the price to be with you. This is when Norma comes up with a plan, and her plan in mind. She went to work studying the ladies of the Gayoso, so that she admired so much. It wasn't until 1915 that Norma decides to take the plunge into the game. Although Norma wasn't the prettiest one to enter the room, she had a way about her, and since she was very well developed for her age and had a big personality, she, she was able to walk into the room and gain the room's attention and keep it. Soon, it wasn't long before she attracted her first mark. Soon, she had the attention of a vet doctor, Sylvester, who at the time of meeting Norma was 60. She told him she was 17, and he chose to believe her on that. This would be the first time Norma would lie about her age, but not the last. However, it would be the last time she would claim herself older. Norma and Sylvester entered into a six week long love affair. When he brought her on excursion boat rides, he would buy her dresses, long gloves, all of this as a foreplay on what was to come next. Norma, however, wasn't ready for what was to come next. As she tells it in this point, in this point of her life, she hadn't gone all the way with a man before. So she knew she wasn't going, she wasn't ready. She wasn't, she knew she wasn't going to give it to him. But she wanted to, she, yeah, she wanted to be one to nine, you know? Like, mm, kill a girl, can you be mad at her? Like, dude's 60, come on. And I don't care how long, how much you tell someone you're 17. You know when someone's younger than they are. I just can't no matter how well developed. Anyways, let's move on. She knew she wasn't going to give him what he wanted, but she was willing to keep stringing him along pretty much. It was after six weeks that Dr. Sylvester, who is growing tired of just floor play, demands that she sleep with him or he was done spending money on her. So she does the right thing and kicks him to the curb. Bye, old man Sylvester, we do not feel bad for you. Not long after Norma gets rid of Sylvester, she meets Andy Wallace, and he becomes more than just a mark to her, a good-looking, wealthy bootlegger who she becomes totally smitten with. He too becomes infatuated with Norma, spoiling her with paying for a downtown Memphis apartment, spending money on her and taking her on a whirlwind romance at the age of 15. 
Men like Andy, though, the ones who are good-looking and make fast, dangerous money, they couldn't be kept because with fast, dangerous money brought a certain type of mystique to you, and women love a good-looking bad boy. Andy was no exception, so even though he claimed to love Norma, she was furious when she found out he was cheating on her. A fight ensued, and Andy shot her. The bullet luckily only glazed her, grazed her ankle, and after that toxic love lovers quarrel, Norma knew she wasn't ever going to be able to keep Wallace. However, when he apologized with a seven carat diamond ring, and started introducing her as his wife, Mrs. Wallace, she allowed herself to live in the lover's lover's dream for a little bit longer. Eventually though, Norma left Andy because he was never hers to keep, but the name stuck, so she kept it. And the seven carat wearing. She also was confident in her new skills of hustling and equipped with her fancy new wardrobe and accessories, she packed up. It was time for Norma to go back home. Arriving back in New Orleans around 1917, her old stomping grounds felt familiar but also new and approved. Storyville, the infamous longest running red light district, was just being ordered to shut down due to the ordinance when the military base moved in, right next door. Trust me, I'll be taking us to Storyville and its colorful history soon. So yeah, Storyville is being forced to close down, but that doesn't mean prostitution was going anywhere. The city as a whole was improving as well when it came to cleanliness. At this point, indoor plumbing was pretty much in all homes. Streets were no longer covered in the mess of the city. The military brought jobs and money, and the already rich cultured entertainment district was just allowed to grow even more. The base shutting things down in Storyville didn't do much damage to the game though. Although it forced them to move a couple blocks away, it also shipped men right into the heart of the French quarters, young men. Some probably who had never even seen bare shoulders before, let alone women dressed half naked coxing them to come inside and enjoy some time together. You know, for a cocktail or two. These were young men who were preparing to see war. There was no guarantee of their safe return. They had nothing else to lose and pretty girls to help them forget what they may, what may lay ahead once deployed as they would be flying in to the tail end of World War I. Norma doesn't waste no time back in the city. She knows the exact location she'll be doing her hustling at. So she heads down to the Cosmopolitan Hotel. The Cosmopolitan, a half a block from the Canal Street, had an address on both Bourbon Street and Royal Street. The lobby running straight through the entire block. It like the Gayoso, catered to the New Orleans most affluent. Norma was all attitude and confidence walking up to the Cosmopolitan that day. She knew that the Cosmopolitan was known to be a family place, but she also knew that not all the ladies coming in going through the ladies' entrance were ladies. 
if you get my drift. She knew that some who walked in and out were ladies of the night in disguise of proper ladies. With all her young girl confidence, she made her way up to that entrance on Royal Street ready to take on the Cosmopolitan and the men. However, before she even made it to the door, the ladies, the ones who know a hustler when they see one because they are too a hustler, cut her off, not letting her get close to that lobby, where more ladies sat in the lobby being wined and dined by the richest New Orleans had to offer. They basically told her, no way, kid, are you coming in to hustle on our territory? And they made it clear that she didn't want to find out what would happen if they spotted her in their territory. They suggested she go to this place or that to learn how to hustle properly. A little bit dejected, but in no way ready to give up. Nora finds herself heading to Bertha Anderson's house. The girls of the Cosmopolitan told her she had the best reputation as a madam. Bertha Anderson worked in Storyville as a prodigy to Josie Arlington, a famous madam of Storyville. Bertha, being a smart businesswoman, seen the writing on the wall when it came to Storyville, and she had the mindset to leave Storyville and move to the French quarters, so when Norma showed up at her doorstep at 335 Dolphin Street, Bertha already had a thriving business. Bertha really liked Norma, and because of that, she tried like hell to talk Norma out of the lifestyle. Try to convince her this wasn't the path for her. Norma was having none of it though, and although she was appreciative of Bertha looking out for her, she wasn't going to take no for an answer. She had a certain type of lifestyle she wanted, and this was the way she was going to get it. She also told Bertha that she had a mother and a brother she had to take care of and needed her. So Bertha took her in and under her wing. Norma celebrated her 16th birthday at Bertha's, and although we can't say for sure that Norma participated in the house activities because she glosses over her time at Bertha's. She did, however, stay at Bertha's for two years, and no one stayed in a house for free, not even if the madam liked you. Norma learned two critical lessons from Bertha. According to Norma, Bertha taught me about dope, how it can affect people and stay away from it, and save her money. Just like in Hell's Half Acre, dope or morphine was the drug of choice for this time period, and morphine was incredibly addictive and a very slippery soap slope if you chose to turn to it. So Norma stayed away from the dope, had heeding Bertha's warning, and went on to warn others to avoid it as well. Not all listened, but at least she did her best to try to teach the girls under her how to be smart. The second lesson that Bertha drilled into Norma's head was once you hit your 20s, you were considered old within the world of sex trade. I know, I know, ew, ew. However, this is history, and like most history, it wasn't all sunshine and daisies. And when you started your period at the average age of 12, you were entering into womanhood. 
So yeah, Bertha made sure Norma knew that by the time she turned 20, she needed an exit plan or a way up in the gate. Remember earlier when I mentioned the age of Amanda, her mother, when she chose to make the entrance into the game at 39? This is what I meant about knowing through Norma's story that her mother at her age never had the chance to join a final brothel that brought most of the clientele and money. When you aged out of a brothel with no exit plan or strategies around your early 20s, your income was cut in more than just half. You no longer had the protection of a house and a madam, the convenience of having the Johns come to the house. Instead, you worked the streets, which could be very dangerous, or rented cribs. Crib girls were women who worked in these little rooms that normally just had a bed and chair furnishing them. They could be rented out hourly. Sometime a, sometimes a couple of crib girls would go in on renting rooms together. Sometimes women had pimps who they would work for. Working for a pimp pretty much was the worst possible option as most of the time these women were, weren't doing this on their own free will. They were usually doped and trafficked against their will. I wanna take a moment to note that I do understand the topic of the sex trade can walk a very fine line. I know even back in the day, not all sex workers were victims of violence or trafficked, no matter how much society tries to convince you otherwise. I'm also not blind to the fact that human trafficking is a huge problem within our world and has been for pretty much always. I wanna make it clear that forcing someone into something they don't want to do is not sex work. That is human trafficking. Like anything, if you take someone against their will and force them to do your bidding. Whether it's selling sex, drug mealing, hell, even working McDonald's, and keeping the profits and not allowing you to have any free will, that is not work. That is slavery. That is not what we talk about here. I know this is a very taboo, sensitive topic. However, there were women who chose this life. Maybe down our journey, there will be women whose stories may start off with their choice being taken away from them, but they overcome and thrive within. I believe that this is history, women's history, and we should want to learn from this history. Sex work, though demonized in the public eye, has been around since pretty much the dawn of time. There is a reason it's called the oldest profession. It can be traced back to ancient times, and the, as the world changes, ebbs, and flows, one thing is clear. No matter how much society shouts and tries to convince themselves it's immoral and not real work, that's not true. It's just not. The more we dig into history, the more we we dig into this history, I think the more clearer that will become. That if we stop shying away from the topic and be more willing and accepting, that could really help things change and become safer. And it could become safer in general for the people who work within the sex trade. As the saying goes, sex sells. And it's going to continue to sell, so we should learn from our history. Okay, I went on a tangent, but I'm just trying to be very clear where I stand. Sex work is real work. Slavery is not. And researches 
should be put towards stopping sex trafficking and saving those who are stuck within instead of putting the that resource to shutting down real women who make it their career who build their own businesses and thrive in their chosen career okay let's get back to norma a woman who definitely chose this career and never regretted it Norma, who had dropped out of school when she was young due to her mother and father abandoning them, she regretted it. She didn't want that to hold her back. She started her own self-educational program, read any book she could get her hands on, looked up any words she didn't know in the dictionary, learned everything she could. So by Norma's 18th birthday, she had made a decision. She wasn't going to become a streetwalker. No, that was not going to be the life she led. Norma decided that she was going to move on up. A self-promotion, one might say. Norma wasn't done with this lifestyle. She was done. She was just done being the one working for someone else. She was ready to become a landlady, which was what madams referred to them selves as. Actually, no one running a house or in the game used the word madam. Only what they considered the squares did. Norma wanted to be the top dog, and when Norma wanted something, nothing got in her way. Norma also knew that if she was going to start her new career path, she was going to need some help. Two kinds of help. Help getting herself into an apartment, and that came in the form of a girlfriend who lived in Memphis that could help her get her own apartment. The second form of help she was going to need was clientele. And no one liked to spend money like the crooks did. That is when Andy Wallace's help comes into play. Even though Andy shot her, she couldn't and she knew she couldn't tame him, she still kept in contact with him and he had all of the connections to the bootleggers and hustlers. So it was only logical that Norma moved back to Memphis and she started running her operation out of her apart out of the apartment. Norma would call girls in two or three times a day for her clientele. The bootleggers and hustlers were very generous with their money. And this worked for her for a while. Two years into her apartment, she did start getting a little bit homesick though. So around the time when her apartment started to get hot, she decided it was time to go back home again. What she considered to be her real home. New Orleans. In 1920, New Orleans was the largest city of the South at the time, and even though the economy was declining after the end of the World War One, that didn't change the fact that the French quarters was still where the good time was to be had. The French Quarter was still full of hookers and night spots like the old Cadillac and Novality Club. And around this time, a popular entertainment se- section of the Upper French Quarter was was nicknamed the Tango Belts, named after the po- popular Argentina dance, the Tango, that swept the world in 1913. The Tango Belt spanned multiple blocks. For example, St. Louis, Delphine, Iberville, and North Rampart. The Tango Belt was a mix of bars, cabernets, vaudeville houses, saloons, dance halls, and theaters. 
This was the Jazz Haven. It was also racially diverse, which played into its mystique. According to Norma, the girls worked the streets aggressively here because competition was keen and prices were cheap. They would take men back to their cribs for as little as 25 cents. Upon returning to New Orleans, she did not go back to Bertha's, whose house was right in the middle of the Tango Bell action. It is possible that Norma didn't have the connections to return to the heart of the action. She did, however, move into a friend's house, Louise Jackson, who she had met at her time within Bertha's. Louise was running her business that was successful, even though it was located outside of the French quarters at 144 South Rampart, across the street from Canal Street. Louise was running a full-scale operation, even though she had epilepsy and her husband had sticky fingers. One day after Louise had a bad seizure due to her epilepsy and became very ill, she asked Norma to run her house while she recovered in the hospital. Norma was barely 20, but she was getting the chance to try her hand at running a large house with several working girls, three to four maids, a brothel house staff, all while keeping Luis's husbands out of the money and keeping a low profile. She did not fail this task. The night before Luis was supposed to come home from the hospital, Norma was having what she thought was starting to feel like a typical night in a house. When a John went up with one of Luis's girls, a few minutes later, the girl comes running out, really upset. The John had passed out on her. Norma ran up to check on the client. The last thing any madam wants is a dead man on their hands. Unfortunately for Norma, that's exactly what she had. The John had gone in, had his pleasure, and his heart seemed to just give out. There wasn't much Norma could do but call the cops. While they were on their way, she covered it all up and hid the girls, came up with a clever reason on why the man was there, and laid on the charm to the officers, and all was well. After returning to the Keys back to Louise when she was ready to return, Norma felt like it was probably time to go in, out and get her own place. If at only 20 years old, she could run a place that well and keep the police none the wiser. At 20 years old, though, she didn't quite have the funds to start a large house. Fortunately for her, around this time, a businessman, future lover, husband, and then lifelong friend enters her life. Norma and her boyfriend at the time, Luigi Kona, made plans to go to a juke joint on Sunday. This is where everyone went on Sunday nights. A juke joint, for those who don't know, is the vernacular term for an informal establishment featuring music, dancing, gambling, and drinking, primarily operated by African Americans in the southeastern United States. This juke joint was located in Bucktown, clear across town on the Lake Lake Pontchartrain. Bucktown wasn't really a real town. It just had a few clubs, restaurants, and a few shrimp boats in the 17th Street Canal. It was here that she met Pete Herman, or the man that everyone in New Orleans called the champ. Pete Herman had won the Bantamweight title boxing championship twice, 
But what makes Pete's story so interesting is knowing what he overcame to become a champ twice. Pete had got thumbed in his eye early in his career and he chose to continue boxing. At a point in his career, his eyesight started getting worse and he lost the title. Not allowing his eyesight to stop his dreams, he continued to fight. He then regained the title after creating a new move in boxing called the Faint and Touch System. When arriving at the juke joint, Louis introduced her to Pete, something I think Louis probably regretted. <laughs> I'm not in his head, but where the story goes, this is the last time we really hear of Louis. Pete was there with a few other fighters, and they all got a table together. After a while, Pete asked Norma to dare, and the spark caught fire, and they sure liked each other. By the time Norma met Pete, he was nearly blind, but also a very rich as he left boxing with over a half a million dollars, and he was planning on opening a nightclub. He wanted to open that nightclub in the French quarters. Pete liked Norma and he wanted to see her again. So he invited her to come on down and see the building he was going to turn into his nightclub. Norma didn't know at the time, but she was about to get an opportunity of a lifetime. When Norma went to see him and his future club on the corner of Conti and ben Burgundy. This is where Norma and Pete fell in love. It is also where Pete offered her a dream business offer. He told Norma that he wanted her to go into business with him. He wanted her to start an operation in the apartment above his club. She was so excited and in love that she went right down to Maestries and bought all of the furniture for her new place. That is where she met Robert Maestri, who is just a shop owner at this moment, but we will later play a bigger story in Norma's life and in the history of the city. When Norma moved into her new place at 938 Conti Street, she brought three girls with her, all younger than her. One of those girls she brought with her from Luis's was Dora Rosso, who becomes a notorious madam in her own right. Dora got into the game almost by accident, as she was just visiting with Norma at Luis's when a big, browdy soldier came in. He liked a certain type of woman, someone who had a lot of cushion on her, a woman like Dora. Dora turned her first trick that day and never looked back. Pete's ringside bar and lounge would go on to become a hub of nightlife in the tango belts. Norma and her girls started doing well for themselves. Norma decided to expand the business and she knocked out the wall upstairs to expand. She now had an address on Conti and at 328 Burgundy. This was huge for when it came to business. Plus, working above the nightclub gave the girls a certain kind of protection from the police and Norma used that to her advantage. I was quite the swinger. I worked the doorways, stood out, and did the Charleston anything to attract attention. Because Norma and P had Pete and his nightclub as a cover, her and her girls didn't have to advertise the normal way. 
which normally included hanging in the windows half or fully naked and or walking the streets. Norma and her girls could dress fancy and hang out outside Pete's under his big neon sign that featured him in his boxing attire and entice the men into the nightclub for just a drink. It was in the club that the bar patrons, bartenders, and girls would let the newcomers know that it was upstairs that they should go if they were in need of something stiffer than a drink. At this time, the town was at it again, calling for reform, and all too familiar song and dance began to play again. As we talked about in episode two, Hell's Half Acre, It was often that the city's people would want reform, but the city itself was making way too much money to actually put an end to vice, especially the wide open city of New Orleans. As it also was a huge entertainment district, so music, drinking, gambling, and prostitution put all together and you created a culture that everyone wanted to experience. So it was a huge stop on people's vacation or places to visit or B-list. The vice brought in people to the city, which also brought in money to the city. So when reform came up again, whoever was the elected mayor at the time would then jump all over the superintendent of police, which is just another name for chief of police, who would then issue a crackdown and the Tango Belt would come under siege until the city people got bored and moved on. A lot of the time, though, the police were often clients of a lot of the girls they were arresting. Again, both police and girls just looked at it as the price of business. At the time of this crackdown, though, they had just got a new Captain Theodore Ray, who looked at himself as an upholder of discipline and law and order. He was a real goody two-shoes. Captain Ray was put in charge of eradicating prostitution from the French quarters. He was arresting prostitutes left and right. Norma had to make sure she kept herself, her girls, and the clients safe from any potential raid that Captain Ray might have planned for her place. Since she had two different entrances to her place, Norma decided that at one entrance, she'd open a bar to create a great cover. The other entrance bypassed the bar and allowed the her and her girls a great escape route if they were to need one. Behind the bar was a peephole allowing them to keep watch for any police. If they were to come in, they would just exit out the other door. This definitely gave Norma peace of mind. But what she loved the most about the whole thing was outsmarting Captain Theodore Ray. I always did say, without the police, I would have never made it 40 years. Because with Ray on a rampage to clean up vice, it taught her how to successfully run a more discreet business. Even though long-term Norma was able to outwit the police, that didn't mean she didn't find herself in handcuffs every now and again. New Year's Eve, December 31st, 1923, Norma wanted to have a full house for the exciting night. And for that to happen, she needed two more gentlemen. So she did something she normally never does, and she went out searching for them. 
Right before giving up, she noticed a couple of men walking her way. One had a very attractive way of carrying himself. She liked the way he moved, so she knew these were the men she wanted to bring back. She called out to them, but at that point, she noticed that they were already walking very purposely towards her. She also noticed that they were walking pretty sober, which was abnormal for the time for the fact that it was New Year's Eve, the French Quarters was alive with booze. She knew then that unfortunately her New Year's Eve was about to be spoiled. She could have run and probably gotten away, but that wasn't Norma's style. So she stood her grounds and attempted to sweet talk her way out of it, but no luck there. Norma was arrested for the first time that night and rang in the New Year's in the holding cell at the police station with other ladies of the night who had gotten rounded up and the drunks who were sleeping it off. The arresting officer, the one with the sexy walk, well, that was George Wire. And he was known to be just as colorful as some of the people he arrested, and his and Norma's path would soon cross again, but in a much more interesting way next time. She eventually was released early into the new year and went home to business as usual. Also, while Norma is trying to avoid the eye of Captain Way Theater, in 1919, the role Stead, the Volstead Act was passed, and by the following year, prohibition started. The 18th Amendment banned all alcohol beverages as well as production and distribution. The Volstead Act defines an intoxicating beverage as anything that contained more than one half of 1% of alcohol. For almost three centuries past, vice was tolerated in the city because it was known for its gambling, which was illegal, and but still tolerated. Thing in the city, cockfighting being one of the first forms of gambling, and it was such a big part of the culture that the first Mardi Gras parade float was a giant cock in 1838. Louisiana was only one of five states that allowed cockfighting that did not make it illegal, and they did not make it illegal until 2007. Also, a very wealthy son of a prodigy Corell family, I know I'm saying that, that word wrong, I'm sorry, <laughs> um, and I'm going to butcher his name, so get ready for that as well. Bernard Xavier Philip de Margina de Madaville <laughs> would introduce craps to New Orleans. Also, is it crabs or craps? I'm not sure. He would also go to... He, he was the one to introduce it to New Orleans, and he would also go on to lose his fortune and descend into poverty. But like prostitution, the city was known to overlook any sort of gambling. Just as we can assume the city overlooked pro prohibition, we know it did, as it did the rest of its vice. Captain Ray's war on vice was really against the city's norm up until this point. He still turned a blind eye to gambling, the shit ton of booze all around him, and the bootleggers bringing it in. He didn't care about any of that, no. He had a hard-on for the girls, no pun intended. Or pun intended. <laughs> so if you think of it, Norma opened her house, her first illegitimate business, then to open an illegitimate business to the bar to cover up her first business, the one she really had passion for, and 
it worked. Norma was starting to really learn the ropes of the New Orleans underworld and was on her way to claiming her crown. Norma's bar helped continue to change her clientele as well because it was a well-run bar with a whorehouse attached to it. It pretty much advertised for itself. Around this time, the economy wasn't great. The war had ended, ending a lot of jobs, and sending home a lot of broken men who also couldn't find jobs. Meaning, just less money being spent around town. This caused a lot of madams and brothels to lower their prices to continue to survive in the overall economy. Not Norma, though. The bar success brought in a more affluent and influential crowd. She continued to raise her prices, and the men seemed to flock to her and her establishment. So money seemed to just be flowing in. Money wasn't just good for Norma, though. It was good for Norma's girls as well, because Dora Rosso decided that it was time for her to strike out on her own, and so she did. Dora had been being kept by an older wealthy Jewish man, so she was smart, knew how to talk, and carried herself well. She was nobody's fool. When Dora stuck out, struck out on her own, she placed herself at 335 Bugundi Street, smack dab in the middle of the seediest part of town, what they used to call Smokey's Row because people would find bloody wallets and men's clothing buried there. It was rumored that the men that the clothing belonged to were also buried there, just deeper. Dora, though, took an opposite tactic that Nor than Norma. She chose the sleaziest part of town because she would have her girls openly advertise, naked on the streets or in the windows. They would be very aggressive about their advertisement, even going as far as fingering themselves. Dora did well, though. She was able to open up another house down the road, putting Norma smack in the middle of Dora's two businesses. Was it nefarious reasons? It kind of seems that way on paper, right? Your prodigy leaves and opens two houses, putting you in the middle of them? However, despite the competition, Norma continued to do well for herself. In fact, all of the girls did well for themselves in the Tango Belt. There was enough business to keep everyone happy. Everyone happy. And the catfighting to a minimum. Norma's house was so successful, though, that she and her girls would, would take every Sunday off a week, which was pretty uncommon in the life of a prostitute. Sunday night is for balling which that meant for Norma and her girls, they would get dressed up, hit the town, drinking champagne, and dance the night away. So even though Captain Theodore Ray was continuing his fight and crackdown on prostitution, the Tangle Belt was in full swing and as rowdy as ever. That really just infuriated him. So he would constantly increase his crusade enacting more and more raids and arrest. Norma was arrested over five times in three months, which for Norma was a lot, but for everyone else, that was nothing. Most girls in the Tango Bella had more than 100 arrests on their record. That was a lot to do with the way Norma chose to run her business in less of a flashy, aggressive way. Norma and 
Norma had her girls also start their own code language after a cabbie kept asking her about her Vidalias, meaning her girls. So the girls took that over. They liked the word Vidalias. So say a countryman walks in looking like this was his first time out of his town, let alone in a house. They would say to each other, here's a Vidalia on a holiday, meaning he most likely would only spend $10. A double Friday meant 20. Norma also used code language and nicknames in her little black book, just in case it fell into the wrong hands. Meanwhile, the world Vidalia caught on and was being used all around town. It started off as street slang for cabbies to identify male clients looking for a prostitute, but then it eventually morphed into a tag for a sucker from out of town. Not all Vidalias looking for a house were looking for sex though. One day, Norma gets a call from a cabbie letting her know he had a Vidalia from New York who wanted all her girl's present at the house for him when he got there. This is super uncommon. This is a super uncommon request from a John because normally they were able, only able to or willing to pay one or two girls at a time. Norma though was known to cater to her client's request, so she got all her girls together. When the John arrived, who we will call Jack, he was a well put together man with his secretary he asked Norma to pop a bottle of champagne and he began drinking and hanging out with all of them. His secretary uh, chose to stay sober, but occasionally he would take one or two girls up to the room for a while before returning with them. Jack, however, seemed con content to just stay downstairs and drink and hang out with the lady. Anytime a girl would pass Jack's path, he would yell out, put her down for 20. He would also yell with a certain regularity, regularity, put them all down for 20. Norma stayed by his side and started a tab for Jack and his secretary. This seems like a good thing, right? Like, heck yes, this guy is here to spend money. But Norma was low-key sweating. Believe me, my heart was soaring because a whore wants her money first. And when you have to wait for it, you're in a bad condition. When Jack did pick a girl and go upstairs with her, he would just draw a bath for them. Then they would cuddle and sleep. This went on for three days straight. So you wanna bet that Norma was worried when she totaled up his bill and it was $4,500, $75,000 today. When it came time to pay, Jack told his secretary to write her a check. Norma almost screamed. A check? That was not good news for her because by the time she could even get it to the bank, Jack and his secretary would be long gone and her and her girls would be out a lot of money and no way to get it. Norma, quick on her feet, asked for his secretary to go down to cash it and bring it back. Under the guise, wouldn't want a woman with Norma's reputation to cash a check of his. However, Jack was like, no, just take it, the check you'll be fine. Not wanting to push or seem rude, plus having no other real option, 
she took the check and watched Jack leave. Norma really was feeling like this check was worthless and knew it was going to take at least four to five business days to clear anyways. So she decided before she went all the way to the bank, she would call her friend who worked at the bank to ask if he could check out the check and just see if it was legit. Later that day, he called her back and let her know that Jack's bank said that any check of his was good for any amount, and he was a very prominent family of New York. So the check cleared and they all got their money. Norma during this time would go on to be arrested 13 more times. Again, still not a horrible rec record considering, but for her, she hated it. Her charges ranged from solicitation, operating from a doorway, to operating within a house. Norma, though, never spent a night in jail. Happy Russo, Dora Russo's husband, friend of the night recruiter, who let a lot of prostitutes go before they even got booked, would just be told Norma was there and they would get her out as quick as possible. So Happy had that, so I don't know if that made sense. Happy Russo, Dora's husband, knew the night recruiter, which I think is just someone who works the night uh, station at the police station. Worked the night shift at the police station. And he, so Happy knew the night recruiter. And anytime Norma, he was already like really lenient on the prostitutes when they would come in at night and let them go anyways. But anytime Norma got arrested, Happy would call the night recruiter and get her out right away. So Norma and the other ladies were constantly getting out of every arrest that was made. And the corruption of his own department was adding to the rage that Captain Ray was feeling. Captain Ray, though, was about to get vindicated as the FBI was ready to make a crackdown on the liquor that was flowing freely in New Orleans. In 1925, they deemed New Orleans liquor capital of the world, and they felt it was time to crack down. For the next two years, the FBI started cracking down on everything vice. They started padlocking speakeasies all around town, even padlocking New Orleans' famous old absinthe bar on its 100th anniversary. Pete, however, was one of the only ones to survive. I wonder if that has anything to do with his status as a boxer. This is when the Tango Bell started to decline, as all of the businesses were being padlocked. Captain Ray, seeing the opportunity present itself, he took it. He asked Acting Mayor T. Sims Wellesley to issue a vacate notice to evict landladies and their tenants from known homes within the Tango Bell. On August 18th, 1928, Captain Theodore Ray delivered what he thought was going to be the killing blow of the Tango Belts. In a way, it was. Closing and padlocking over six houses and soft drink establishments, which were little carts, which I didn't know about these, but um, back in the day, they had girls work soft drink carts. And so they were just like little carts, like almost like hot dog stands, um, which were... Uh, but they were ran by the prostitutes who would use to sell, like, drinks, sex, and take bets for gambling. Uh, Dora Rosa and Camilla, another prominent landlady and friend of Norma, were named specifically in the order. 
Their houses were among those who got padlocked. Once padlocked, the houses couldn't be occupied for an entire year straight, forcing them to move out of the Tangle Belt and out of business for those who couldn't afford to move to a new house. Captain Ray also brought charges against the night recruiter for corruption. Norma did not get her house padlocked. She was at the time still uh, operating out of Pete's lounge, and Pete didn't get uh, padlocked, and neither did she. Don't think that has anything to do with Captain Theodore Ray being nice to them. I think it just was, he was not as powerful as Pete was. So they got away with it. By 1928, Pete and Norma, though, were having relationship troubles. They were constantly breaking up and then making up. Norma felt that she needed to leave so she moved out and broke up with Pete. However, Norma and Pete continued to do business together and she continued to run girls above his nightclub. Norma also decided that at this time, when the crackdown, sh when the crackdown shutting a lot of the madam's houses down in the Tangle Belt, it would be a good time for her to start her own house somewhere else. She went out and rented a beautiful Corel-style home at 410 Delphine Street. Norma was going to really refine her business model at the 410 Delphine Street. She already knew she preferred a low-key advertisement to keep as much heat off of her as possible. Norma would no longer have the guise of a nightclub to hide under this time, so she had to make some adjustments. She had to figure out a new way to bring clientele in without openly advertising. She drew some inspiration from Glenn Evans. Evans had been running a very classy, very discreet parlor house in the French quarters for years. She would get help from the cabbies, bartenders, and word of mouth, keeping her ladies from the windows and walking the streets. And they definitely wouldn't look like your normal street walker. They really could pass as proper ladies. So for Norma, her new house, she knew she wanted to keep it classy, and so she did. She went out and handpicked all her furniture from Maestries again, getting fine items and antiques, picking out sexy sofas and all-around seductive look to her new home. At this time, Norma updated her roster as well, letting go a lot of her current girls, just keeping a few to work within Pete's. For her new house, though, she hired only the prettiest girls she could find. In her words, she had the finest house in the French quarters. Norma had no room in her new house for drugs or pimps. And unfortunately, those two normally would come together. A lot of the girls she had working for her in Pete's had pimps. Pimps were the lowest of the lowest in Norma's eyes because they often kept their girls strung out on dope and pretty much leached off them, keeping them hooked on drugs and controlling their money. A pimp would hang out and live in the brothels in the girls' rooms until a John would come in, then they would leave, go have a smoke or a coffee until they got the all clear. Sometimes they would have to go wait, sometimes they would have to go wait at the local diners for hours on end, or even sometimes returning to the house to settle down only for a new John to come in and outside they had to go all over again. You know what they say, a pimp's life, a hard life. 
Ugh. Norma wanted none of that at her new house. So she issued a new rule to new girls coming in. They were not allowed to have pimps. They were not allowed to be on drugs. With this new rule, she also decided that all of her girls, when leaving the house, had to leave fully put together. No more scantily clad girls. If they were going to be seen in town, they had to be seen dressed as a lady. That meant long gowns, matching gloves, hats, and closed-toed shoes. Hair and makeup done. Hair and makeup done, but the girl's makeup had to be proper and subtle, not over the top. Another rule Norma put in place for the, her new girls and new house was that they were not allowed to kiss their clients. If a girl were to come down with a messed up lipstick, she would be fired. Norma wanted to make it clear to the girls and her clients that they were selling sex, not love. Her girls were supposed to be discreet and loyal to Norma, not the men who came through. She also put a rule in place that she didn't want her girls working on their periods. However, some girls would still work without, with it, without her knowing by using sponges. Norma would also make her girls go get checked by a doctor twice a week because she wanted to keep a very clean house. The doctor was often having to remove sponges from girls on their visits because they would get stuck. <laughs> so... You. The final rule Norma put into place was that under no circumstances was a girl allowed to roll a customer. In other words, Norma didn't want her girls stealing, shaking them down, or extorting them at all. She needed her girls to be of the highest morale. Any girl breaking the rule would get dismissed from Norma's roster. And if they were lucky enough to get in, you definitely didn't want that happening. Due to these changes that she was able to make, it brought a better class of clientele for her girls. Local businessmen who frequented the exclusive clubs across Canal Street, like the Boston Club, Louisiana Club, and the Pickwick, these were the men who actually controlled the money and New Orleans. The men who were part of the old line secret carnival organization. The type of thing that was so sacred, you had to be born into it. Norma liked to call these men the good men because they had money to spend and they were good for her and her girls. Although not all the good men were the, on their best behavior. One night about a week before Mardi Gras, a good man showed up to Norma's late into the night. He was on a high as was as he was to be the that year's carnival king in the royal court. He also had been out gambling that night and won $2,500. He had the money to spend and enough booze in him to feel like he was the king of the world. Norma welcomed him in. She wasn't about to turn down a good man who had just hit it big. Once inside, Norma knew that it was going to take a couple of girls to handle him that night. So she attempted to have him go upstairs with a couple of her finest girls. But it started to become pretty clear that the girls were not what he, was, he wanted. He felt like he was on a conquest and made it pretty clear he wanted the madam of the house. Norma herself. 
The perks of being a nanan, however, was that you were in control of your house, money, girls, and who you decided to sleep with. Norma had not turned a trick since the last time she was working for someone else, and she wasn't about to do it again. So he started taking the entire 2,500 he won and shoving it her away, trying to stuff it in her bra, anywhere she on her that he could, he was trying to give it to her. Still, Norma said no, and you could tell this irritated him, but he played it off by asking her to dance, not, not wanting to be rude and also hoping she could turn this situation around and make him happy with her girls, she accepted the dance. While dancing though, he became pretty aggressive, trying to get what he wanted from Norma, not taking no for an answer. A scuffle took place and Norma had to protect herself. And at one point, the Carnival King slipped and fell hitting his head on the coin-operated music box on the way down. And he was hurt bad. Norma knew this was not good. The last thing you need was an upset, hurt John in your house. And to make matters worse, he refused Norma's attempt to take him to the hospital, which she knew he needed. Norma being the 5'2 petite woman she is, and her girls being not much bigger, could not drag this big old carnival king to the car to take him there themselves. Low-key panicking, but trying not to keep the situation under control, Norma even suggested they go to a hotel together, but he even refused that, this point knowing he wasn't getting what he wanted that night. Norma then still not wanting to call the police. As for a, a landlady, that was the worst possible option. She called Gaspar Galato, Pete's brother. He came over to check on the Carnival King and tried to reason with him, but he was still having none of it. After a while, Gaspar told Norma that the only thing left to do was to call the police if she didn't want him dying on her floor. Luck seemed to always be on Norma's side though, however, because Captain Ray had just been promoted out of the, her priesting and things were starting to go back to normal for the French Quarter Vice. So she took her chances and called the cops. Before they arrived, Norma went around and gathered all the money he had been throwing around that night. And when the cops arrived, they wanted to take him to jail. However, Norma convinced them with the man's entire winning from the night 2,500 to take him to the hospital. A few hours later, when the man got sober and collected himself, he called the police station claiming Norma had rolled him and he demanded she be arrested. The arresting officers, the ones that were $2,500 richer, were not on duty any longer. So when the new cops showed up at Norma's to question her and search the house, she couldn't very well tell them what was happening, saying, I couldn't tell them the real story of where the money went, once a bribe's taken, mum's the word. I was just going to have to take it on the chin. However, when the Carnivore King found out that he had a fractured skull and the type of not going to take it easy kind of woman Norma was, he decided he didn't want the publicity that would come along with trying to get Norma in trouble. So with his tail tucked in between his legs, he conceded and went away quietly. 
the would-be king, Miss Mardi Gras all together that year. Some people are just not meant to be king. That wouldn't be the first time that Norma was going to be accused of rolling someone. Norma was a huge movie buff. She would make sure to see all the new movies as they were released. She made it a habit to go to the late night show with just her fur coat and nothing underneath. So Norma recognized majority Rambo, a majority Rambo, saying her name wrong as well, I'm sure. Even though I listened to how you say it, now I can't. She was a huge movie star at her this time, and she was on Norma's front door. Norma was surprised to see her at her door, but was excited to welcome her in, and the straggler that also was with her. <laughs> Majority was ready to party and pulled out a hundred for a bottle of champagne to get the party started. Majority was again more interested in Norma than the other girls, but just like the would-be carnival king, Norma wanted none of it. However, Majority knew how to take no for an answer and decided to just enjoy her time with Norma and the rest of the girls. Buying bottle after bottle of champagne, Norma being responsible started pouring her champagne glasses in the plant that she was sitting by. Majority really wanted to dance with Norma and the girls, but again, after the would-be king incident, her and the girls didn't dance with the clients anymore. So to keep her movie star happy, she instead had her girls dance naked for her. She loved it. She continued to throw out hundreds for tips and hundreds for more champagne. Majority was supposed to catch that evening train back home that night. However, she missed her train and the night partied on. Soon, they had a very drunk movie star, and the movie star straggler who Norma was pretty sure she'd picked up on the train ride over. Norma didn't want the ladies to sleep over. She was worried that they would wake up embarrassed, so Norma called for the cabbie and paid to have them taken to a hotel. She was also very clear about making sure that that she made it to said hotel with all jewelry still on her person. The cabbie called to let Norma know that the ladies, though very drunk, made it to the hotel. That night, when Norma counted how much the movie star had spent at her house, she was a bit shocked, as it totaled up to 30 grand. Norma, even herself thinking, that's a lot to spend in one night at one house where no sex was even sold, she decided that she would hold on to the money, and if majority came back, she would give some of it back. The next morning when the movie star woke up, she was extremely hungover. And her and her straggler mixed that next day's train as well. However, the next morning, when the movie star was feeling better, she called the police claiming that there had been a robbery. Not willing to wait for the cops, she stormed over to Norma's, busting into the house unwelcomed and pushing past the maid as she was telling her she wasn't allowed in Norma's room and that she would go get her. Majority didn't care. She just pushed her way in. Thinking she was too good to listen to the maid, she continued and busted into on Norma, who had heard the commotion, figured out what who it was, and hid the money. When Majority started demanding that Norma had robbed her and needed to return the money, 
Norma, who had planned on returning some of the money, was pissed that this lady was who was willingly came into her house throwing money in her own was going to pull something like this. So Norma no longer was about to give her any of her money back. And she was not going to give in to these ridiculous claims. Had she come in here right, that would have been a different story. But Norma looked Majori straight in her eyes, not showing any fear and told her no. Clearly, this lady, probably doesn't get told no that often, was shocked. So then Majority strong-armed her, spitting and yelling that she had already gone to the cops and that Norma couldn't even use the money because her husband had marked it before she had left Hollywood. Of her, Norma wasn't scared of her and simply said, if I can't cash those $100 bills, shame on you because you will be reading about it. Majori, clearly taken aback and slowly realizing she definitely lost. The last thing a movie star needed was a headlines telling the story about a movie star in a battle with a New Orleans madam. Coming to terms with the fact that she was definitely not getting going to get her money back, she changed her attitude. Laughing it off and telling Norma, why don't we pop up another bottle of champagne for old times sake? Norma did for hospitality and awkwardness sake. While having a glass, Norma told her had she come in right, she would have given her some of her money back and that she had planned to do that. But because of the way she went about it, she would not, she really wouldn't be returning any of it. So Majority kissed Norma goodbye and said if she ever found herself in Hollywood to come and find her and she would show Norma a good time. Norma was thinking in her head, Yeah, lady, sure you will. Norma now found herself with a lot of money. Norma made the decision to give a cut to everyone like normal, but not as much, as no sex was actually sold. And after that being said, she was left with $24,000. Norma made a decision to buy an, an annuity with it to start herself a retirement fund. Norma went on to watch every single movie Majority was in. In 1929, the stock market crashed and the world was gearing up for a very dark and scary time. Politically, for New Orleans, it wasn't looking great either. Louisiana had just gotten a new governor, Huey Long, who wanted the Carnival families, the good men, out of power in New Orleans, and he was going to get it at any cost. New Orleans Mayor T. Sims Wellsme was put in charge because of his connection to the Carnival families. So this was a start of a political battle that only affected the city's people. When the market crashed, Long used that as a weapon by starving the city into submission and also preventing banks from lending them money. Later, he would burn it in trash by not releasing money to pay the garbage collectors and forcing a strike in a record-breaking heat wave. Could you imagine? The political war got so intense that at one point, Long threatened to put New Orleans under military rule. He was specifically going to target vice and prostitution, and Norma Cobb's friends told her that she should probably close up shop for a few days. During this time, Norma rented an apartment and ran only three or four girls at a time. 
She only did this for the good men who were worth the risk with the political war and the stock market crashing. Not a lot of good men could visit Norma anymore. So the ones that she did, she made sure to take care of them. By 1923, Long had backed off a little bit from New Orleans Vice, so Norma was back to business as usual at Fort Ten Dolphine. The police definitely still had raids, but they were really superficial, just for the police to say to the politicians outside of New Orleans, look, we're doing our job. When said token raids came Norma's way, she found an easy solution to hiding her girls. Norma's balcony looked towards her neighbor's Mary window. Anytime that there was a raid, Norma's girls would put out planks and walk over to Mary's and hide there until the raid was complete. Wellesley really came to an end when Long was assassinated in 1935. Do you remember the cop who arrested Norma on New Year's Eve? The one with the sexy walk, George Wire? Well, that was Norma's first arresting officer, and no one forgets their first. I told you he would cross paths with Norma again, and in 1932, George Wire becomes the police chief of New Orleans. And if we would remember what I said earlier about Wire, was that he was as colorful as of a player as the ones that he arrested. Wire felt that the real crime was those who were strong-arming and violent. He felt that prostitution was a victimless crime, so as long as you didn't give him a reason to arrest you, he wasn't going to. So, Vice started moving more freely again in the city, which should have been wonderful news for the French Quarter. But the world was really feeling the effects of the Great Depression, and the French Quarter, already a seedy place where money came in quick but could be gone just as quick, was really suffering. So much so that the people started murmuring about it being a slum. Even rumors started to spread that they were going to start tearing down the buildings to do, to do housing projects. Norma found opportunity in the very worst of situations, and she wasn't going to allow anything to take her down. This was actually when Norma was able to make her first fortune. Because even though the good men were coming in fewer and far between, Norma was able to capitalize and find a whole new form of clientele in the numerous conventions that would come into the city, even during the Great Depression. The conventions not only brought a new clientele, money, but a lot of stories to be told about the people that came through. On the week that the Undertakers came into town, one found themselves at Norma's, and when he left, his girl came down and she told the rest of them. It was the easiest money she had ever made. All she had to do was lie there as if she was dead. Ugh. Norma and her girls definitely found out his name and where he was from because they definitely didn't want to be screwed after death. <laughs> Norma also tells the story about the week the Baptists came into town. And again, one of them made their way to Norma's. He was upstairs with his girl for only a few seconds before he came downstairs really upset, telling Norma that her girls wouldn't have him because she said that he had a dose. Norma said, well, 
If my girl says you have a dose, you have a dose. He became even more agitated and insisting that that was impossible. He was a preacher. So Norma rolling her eyes when he wasn't looking, of course. Fine, I'll have my housekeeper look. She's an expert in these things. A few seconds later, she came back out saying, Norma, that man has the biggest dose I've ever seen. Norma let him know. Sorry, that means no action for you. He was even more mad, screaming that he has never been with a hooker and that it was impossible. Norma told him then he better go home and talk to his wife then because he didn't get it from no toilet seat. He left really mad, all angry and screaming. But at about 20 minutes later, he returned meek and mild, asking Norma what he could, should do about his little problem. She went ahead and sent him to her girl's doctor, and I'm sure he took good care of him. <laughs> Norma had a girl who worked for her named Jackie. She was classically trained in ballet. They came up together with a seductive dance where Jackie would slowly dance around with a silky robe and at the right moment she would let it slip from her body creating the very first strip show in her living room. This was a big hit not only for the men who visited but also at this point the women who were coming in along with the men to experience the mystique of the New Orleans underworld. This led into all the girls putting on strip shows and building on them. Eventually, the girls even created what they called fake shows, where some of the girls would put on sex shows. However, the men that they had play in these fake shows were all gay. They would go out into the hallways before the show and pump up their members. And they would go out and be able to perform all night. Norma reflected on how none of those men ever orgasmed and how they could put on multiple shows a night but never actually finish. It was all fake. Hence why they called them fake shows. They were all the rage too, especially for the women who were coming not really for the sex, but for the wildness of it, the excitement of it. They would be booked all night. It seemed that even though the Great Depression was taking banks out left and right, it was like the New Orleans banks were holding on tight for Norma. So in 1913, 33, Mardi Gras was coming back around and it was supposed to be a big one. With banks still operating and everything seeming fine, Norma found herself walking in the business district when a clock in a bank caught her attention. She thought it would be so lovely in her house and the bank was giving them out for those who opened accounts with them. Norma thought, Okay, an account is a dollar and the clock she guessed was about 50 cents, so she decided to take the plunge and open an account. She put all her money into that account and then the bank went down. She lost everything, $90,000. But she felt herself lucky even after that because she still had her house and money flowing in, her friends weren't faring the same. Norma made sure she was freely giving out groceries and necessities. She would also make sure to give them things 
that they could trade for money. One of her good friends, who was a cab driver, who had children and was coming up on hard times, she bought her, his children Christmas gifts and bicycles. And when he finally was able to get back on his feet, he, sh he showed his appreciation to Norma by buying her a brand new Frigidaire. By 1933, the Fulstead Act was repealed during repealed, bringing an end to prohibition. Bring on the booze, baby. Throughout prohibition, Norma Steele served near beer and whiskey at a dollar a setup for women and men, which definitely helped her stay afloat during the Great Depression. But once the act was repealed, this allowed Norma to reopen a bar within her house. Norma had hopes to actually buy her own perfect house because at this point she was over her place at 410 Delphine. She felt that both entrances were too public and didn't allow her to have as a discreet of a house as she wanted. And without the perfect house losing all her money, she wasn't even sure she still wanted to be in the trade. She was feeling some burnout, which I think we could all admit we've been there. So she decided she needed to take a vacation. Norma takes the rest of the money she had and took a trip to New York. Trying to clear her mind and decide what she wanted next for herself. In New York, Norma found herself in a Swedish hotel where she meets a friend who took her to an opium house. Now, Norma had no use for drugs, but she was on vacation and wasn't buying, so she decided, what the hell? So she took a little draw. After they left, she looked up at her friend and asked, aren't you supposed to get sick on your first time taking opium? Her friend laughed and said, yeah, you are. Norma, who hadn't gotten sick, giggled to her friend, apologizing for him wasting his money on a girl who didn't know how to inhale. Even though she didn't get a high from it, she felt wicked for smoking huff and enjoyed the rest of her trip. Upon arriving back to New Orleans, she went back to 410 Delphine Street with a little bit of a fresher look on life. New Orleans was also turning a page in their story. Robert Maestries, who owned the Maestry store that all the landladies shopped at for their furniture and house decoration, became mayor in 1926. Now, with Maestri being mayor and Wire being chief of police, New Orleans was back. More of a wide-open city than it had ever been. One of the first things Maestri's did as mayor was appoint a doctor, Frank Gomella, as the Commission of Public Help. This appeased the city's people, making them feel as if Maestri was taking vice, vice cleanup very seriously. Norma and all the ladies of vice were thrilled at these changes. Wire being the police chief who had a very hands-off approach to prostitution and Maestri as mayor, well known to most of the landladies and did business with him and had known him personally, his store was right downtown. Gomella, as the commissioner of public safety, was all right in Norma's book because 
that was the doctor she was sending her girls to twice a week for a while now. The city and the people within were willing to turn a blind eye to Vice for now because they were just happy that money was finally moving back in the city. Norma and I'm sure all the landladies were gearing up for a good, relaxed couple of years with a new political climate looking good for them. Things were only going to get Better and brighter for Norma though. Norma had bought influence when she made the choice to do business with Maestries all those times. However, Norma was ready for more influence and power and she had a plan on how she was going to get it. In 1936, at the top of the FBI's most wanted was a man named Alvin Kirpus. He was wanted for train and bank robbery kidnapping, and murder. Kirpus was known to fancy girls at cat houses, and in the spring of that year, it was rumored that someone fitting his description was on the prowl around town. It was no surprise he found himself at Norma's house. She recognized him and the opportunity that was presenting itself almost immediately. Norma, though, had to be very careful how she chose to proceed because her business ran on discretion and turning a blind eye to those who came through her house. However, Norma was looking to really gain some favor and morality to move forward in her career. To, to do that, she needed to make sure she had good graces of those in power so that she didn't even have to worry about token raids. Even though Alvin was kind and generous to her girl, she felt this was a gift looking her straight in the face. The following day, Captain Wire was tipped off on where Alvin was staying, and the arrest was made that day. Surrounding an apartment on Canal Street where the arrest was made peacefully and no bullets were being fired. The arrest was a huge career boost for a lot of people. Wire, of course, the police chief who got the tip and located him, Maestri, who was the mayor of the city, a FBI's most wanted criminal was just caught in, and J. Edgar Hoover, who at the time was the head of the bureau and flew in to be there for the photos when Carpus was arrested. And of course, we can't forget the one who called the tip in, Norma Wallace. Although she doesn't admit to being the one to tip them off, this was a start of a long relationship with Norma and George Wire. As after that, Wire and his detectives were known to stop into Norma's for friendly visits often. It was, it was a fine line to walk between having influence and protection and being labeled as a rat. But Norma, well, she of course was able to walk that line with perfect balance and poise. At 35 years old, Norma has a new kind of freedom with the police captain and mayor on her side, really allowing the Queen of New Orleans to fully spread her wings. Not that sex trade wasn't totally still a crime, it's just that the rules no longer applied to Norma because she had friends in high places and the wealth to make her own rules. And she was well on her way to becoming the most powerful, influential woman of the New Orleans underworld. And with that, 
that's the end of part one of Norma Wallace's story. And what a wild ride it has been so far. Norma has taken on New Orleans and its underworld, and she's done it with little to no pushback. It was like she was born to be queen. Thank you for joining me tonight. If you enjoyed part one of Norma Wallace's story, please like and share and subscribe. If you're watching YouTube, if you're listening on podcast platforms, please leave a review and I suggest you jump over to YouTube and watch the video version because I add pictures and make silly faces. Join me next week for part two of Norma's story where she truly becomes queen and rules the French quarters and the men within. I hope you enjoy the rest of your nights and weekends and I'll see you next time. Goodbye.